Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and who love just chatting about um, food history and domestic history. Um, and we also like to talk about what we've been uh, making or baking recently, historically related or otherwise. Um, so shall we start by hearing what you've been up to? Okay, yeah. Um, I've started knitting a new lace shawl. Amazing. Because we're going to Italy this year and I oh, decided wow. that that's a reason I need a new lace shawl. Yeah, you've got to be fancy. It's imperative. Well, especially because like, we will probably end up going into like big old church in a very Catholic country. So if I end up having bare shoulders, I should probably, like, conceal them from Jesus. I assume <laughs> that's why people cover their shoulders in church. Is Jesus a shoulder guy? I should stop being sacrilegious on the podcast. <laughs> but anyway, excuse to make a new shawl. It's fairly unavoidable. Um, <laughs> What's sacrilegious? <laughs> at least when you're talking about Western history, I mean. Sure. Um, <laughs> so how big an undertaking are we talking about here? Is it, like... Uh, you know, Shetland gossamer sort of thing. Oh, God, no. I'm not doing (laughs) that again unless it's for something very important. Yeah. Um, I don't think I would even do it for money. It would have to be for something that I felt was very important. Um, I love Shetland lace, but it's so much. It is a lot. And it's surprisingly hard to get the right weight of yarn, frankly. Um, But no, this is... I think it, it's one of those patterns that gets circulated a lot. Uh, the wild swan shawl? Okay. Uh, on Ravelry. Oh, wow. But according to the... Because it, it has a little, like, progress tracker. Mm-hmm. And according to that, I'm 10% in. Which isn't bad, considering I had to frog it last weekend. Cause I oh, no. Completely messed up. And I wasn't sure where, and I hadn't put in lifelines, because I got cocky, apparently. Um, (laughs) I wasn't that far in the first time. Like, I'm about back where Mm -hmm. I was. It just has taken me a while. But this time, I have lifelines. So it's Always wise. I mean, I mostly don't either, and just cry when I have to rip it out. But yeah, that, that that is the sensible thing to do. Well, the thing is, like, you know, as you know, I've done lace knitting a few times. Mm hmm and I've normally noticed errors within the same row. But this one, I think, I don't know what was up, but I didn't. I realized that I had messed it up several rows back, basically. And I didn't have a lifeline, so I just had to frog the whole thing. Oh, no. Yeah, lace is quite hard to just fudge it. Yeah, use, use lifelines, people. <laughs> That's that's impressive though. That's pretty. I mean, it's impressive if I succeed. Like I, I said, mean... I'm ten percent in. <laughs> um, I'm gonna put a link to that pattern on Ravelry in the episode description, actually, because it is gorgeous. Yeah, dude, people should see this. And if you like lace knitting, you should make it because it's great. What have you been up to? Neat. Um, relevant 
to the topic of today's podcast, I have done a little bit of sourdough baking. Oh. Um, yeah, I was... Um, I can't remember the last time we recorded or if I talked about this. Did I mention I made sourdough pizza? You didn't. I didn't. Okay. Well, I was very kindly given a sourdough starter. We haven't recorded for like a month somehow. We haven't. No, it's been a while. One thing and another, you know. Mm. Um, I was very kindly given a sourdough starter uh, by my placement educator. <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. Sure. Um, and um, so I was experimenting with that a little bit. I haven't had much time because um, I didn't realise, but sourdough baking is a longer process. It then. really is. It's like a day-long commitment. Uh, yeah. And so a lot of the recipes I looked at were like, okay, three days before you're going to bake, <laughs> be just after. <laughs> um, I generally don't plan that far in advance for anything I do. So. <laughs> um, but I have made uh, uh, some sourdough pizza. Oh, which... oh yes, yes, yes. It was really good. Um, I even, <laughs> as usual, I decided like the day that I was going to make this. And then I found out that sourdough baking usually takes a longer time. So I was Googling like same day sourdough pizza recipe. <laughs> um, but I found one and, you know, it might not have been as perfect as it would be if I'd, you know, spent a couple of days like tending the dough. But let me tell you, they were pretty delicious. <laughs> Um, honestly, the best pizza I've ever made, I think. Um, yeah, pizza is just another level. Usually when I've made pizza dough, it's turned out like fairly bready, um, which was still nice. But these were like proper thin, like crispy. Goodness. Um, yeah. yeah. Remind so. me at some point, I will give you my sourdough focaccia recipe, which is the focaccia that was at our wedding, which had fin had been demolished by the time we finished signing stuff. <laughs> yes, please. I, I really want to try focaccia. Um, I'm going to try some bread this weekend, I think. And just like a bread bread. Yeah, just, just like, you know, your, your regular bread. Mm -hmm. Your basic bread. Um, bread classic. <laughs> So yeah, I'll, I'll update you on how that goes. I must um, ask, does your starter have a name? It does. Um, so the first time I tried sourdough, which was during the pandemic, um, because I love a bandwagon, uh, <laughs> I had, I got as far as like making up the starter, and then I just kind of forgot about it and it eventually died um which i probably could have revived it now that i know that you can do that but um anyway that was sour joe <laughs> um context my partner is called joe um so that was sour joe sour joe um sadly it's no more um but the current one is doe two point joe oh that's very good <laughs> I like that you've also named this one after Joe. Is that like to make up for killing his namesake? Pretty before? much. Like, <laughs> to make it less ominous, I guess. Actually, it should be Joe, Joe 2.0, shouldn't it? 
I mean, neither works. That it kind of makes more sense, but yeah. I don't know, Joe 2.0 sounds like if you'd made like a bread effigy of him. <laughs> I might do that for birthday. You might have. I don't I don't know your life. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give me ideas. <laughs> I'll do anything when I'm bored. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's the plan. Um, I also on my um, my medieval spinning project um, that what my project for re- reenactment this summer is that I want to do some flax spinning and try and learn the um, theorized medieval um, like in hand style. Um, and so I mentioned last time on one of the last ones, I think I found somewhere I can get line flats. I found somewhere I can get um, a kilogram of <laughs> a British grown line flax for about £35, um, which, which is pretty good. But you have to hackle it yourself, which is like the combing process. So I mean, that's fantastic. It does. Yeah. Um, like it sounds quite fun, actually. But um, yeah, so I... This is my uh, completing my last placement present to myself. I have bought um, a reproduction medieval spindle whirl and a spindle stick. Um, so those should turn up around next week sometime, and I'm excited to try it out. Nice. Um, it's a it's one um, that is it's not super straight um it's not designed for uh suspended spinning like you would with a drop spindle um you sort of hold it in your hand and you do like a semi you sort of flick it and let it go a little bit um and so it has to have quite a, a quite a tip on it um so it's got that and then yeah and then you can you can remove the whirl um and sort of do do all sorts so i'm very excited about that i will report back on how my efforts at learning <laughs> to do that properly go um yeah and that, that's that's where we're at nice. i'm excited to have time to do things again i am so working you said sourdough was related to the episode is this a second uh, episode in a row after a, a good long while of not actually covering bread. <laughs> it is. Um, yeah, l- lucky for everybody listening, um, this is a double bread bill with <laughs> <laughs> our last episode on sliced bread. You get two breads in a row um, and I'm going to talk about sourdough. I almost feel like we should have done them the other way around, but we didn't coordinate. I guess, yeah. It's it's more kind of a happy coincidence mm. than an intention. But, um, yeah, because I guess we're now going back to, like, the very origins of bread. Um, from, from, like, the modern convenience of sliced bread. Bread that would have been legal during that brief period. <laughs> if if you ever have the specific situation of having to survive a sliced bread ban, um, 
think this episode will be useful to you. If you so, haven't listened to our last episode, do so now so that joke will make sense. <laughs> it's a good one, would would recommend. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is just going to be a few facts about sourdough. Um, so if you are unfamiliar with uh, sourdough bread, first of all, where were you during the pandemic? Um, it was everywhere. I'm hoping at home. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was a trend. Um, I think you can definitely say. Definitely, yeah. But, uh, sourdough baking is uh using uh a process um involving a starter um which is like a an active um is it called a levain the thing that you use to leaven bread um I mean, possibly. I've only come across the term leavening, but that doesn't mean that that isn't also a term because that okay. that sounds French. It might be like the French word for it. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I've heard levain somewhere. Um, anyway, basically, like it's a sort of fermented um, substance that you use to make your bread rise. Yeah, it's um, like a flour and water mix with wild yeasts in it. Yeah, and um, the fermentation process um, produces, uh, this is quite difficult for me because it's very, like, um, microbiological. Um, <laughs> and, and, and in adding to the long list of uh, things that we are not on this podcast, <laughs> I am not a microbiologist so the way that that works is by during the fermentation process um the uh it produces um lactic acid bacteria and that's what gives it the the bread um the sour taste I also do find it funny it being lactic acid because that's the same stuff that like gives you a stitch. Yeah. Okay, so it's it's actually the same thing. Yeah, like when when ah. you try to respire without oxygen, uh-huh. you produce lactic acid, which is what causes a stitch, and that's why like breathing real hard helps to get through a stitch. <laughs> Oh wow! I didn't realize that was stuff. It's stitch juice. Exactly the same thing. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) The more you learn on this podcast, Um, yeah. So it's um, bread made using a sourdough starter has a very distinctive taste. Um, It it is delicious in many people's opinion, Uh, and it. But it's sort of a, a longer baking process. So you take your sourdough starter um, and you add some of it to your bread dough um, and then it makes it rise. And sourdough, um, the sourdough process is the oldest form of 
leavening bread of making it rise, as far as we know. Um, yeah, which is pretty cool. Um, however, the practice of using like a specially made sourdough starter is it, it's kind of debatable um, when when that comes in. And a lot of the more ancient ways um, involve a process called backslopping. Excuse me. <laughs> Which is when you take some of the previous day's dough and use it to make today's. Okay. No, I, ha I have heard of that. I just didn't know it was called backslopping. <laughs> now you know about backslopping. I'm glad I'm glad there's a name for it. I'm less glad that it's backslopping. <laughs> um so that's like a form of sourdough, but um yeah, not necessarily you still have the like flavour developing over time like like it does in a an older starter. Yeah, yeah. Um and some of these starters, um so when you have a sourdough starter, you have to maintain it by feeding it uh, with flour and water. And it's kind of like a little pet. <laughs> um, this is why we named them. Yeah. Oh, by the way, what's yours called? Oh, uh, Dorian Gray, because as it ages, its appearance remains the same. Fantastic. Fantastic. And um, some guy that lives in my fridge. <laughs> and is like five years old at this point, I think. You should start having a birthday party. <laughs> um... Anyway, some of these um, can be really old, um, I guess, in the sense of the ship of Theseus, sort of, mm -hmm. it's, it's replenished all the time, but it's essentially the same sourdough starter. If you come up with, because I know, especially now I know that our patrons love a pun, if you mm -hmm. think of a ship of Theseus-based name for a sourdough starter, please tell us. Yeast rhymes a little bit with Theseus. Ship of Eustius? Ship of Eustius. <laughs> or the, the modern version of that paradox I like to use is Trigger's Broom. Um, which is an Only Fools and Horses reference, um, if, if anyone is into that. Yeah. Yeah, I am it aware doesn't... of Jacob's Broom, though. I really liked Only Fools and Horses as a child, despite the fact that I am in my 20s. I it's, it's pretty... I feel like it's got pretty wide view. Oh yeah, just more in terms of, like, regularly watching it. <laughs> I feel like everyone likes a story about, like, a fairly smart guy and his friend who is a not-so-smart guy, and they do morally dodgy things. <laughs> I mean, I guess that is many, many, many fairy tales and stories. True. <laughs> um, anyway, so sourdough. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, as we said, the oldest form of leavening bread, and it uses the wild yeast that are all around us in the air. Which is fun to think about. Um, and so wild yeasts have been used for fermenting lots of things all around the world throughout history. 
Um, but specifically, I'm talking here um, with sourdough about like bread made using wheat or rye or all those kind of grains. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a theory um, that the origin of uh, this this kind of baking was that um, dough f- prepared for making flatbreads was left out and got sort of colonised by the wild yeast. Does this count as colonialism corner? <laughs> I mean, does it count if it's like a natural biological process? <laughs> <laughs> Um, you just said colonized on this podcast. (laughs) I guess it counts as colonialism corner, but not in a bad way. (laughs) (laughs) Because it gave us sourdough. (laughs) Um, And it's it's thought that this likely happened in the Fertile Crescent, um, sort of with the the beginning of agriculture. So quite early on in our bread making journey as a species oh yeah pretty early um and we uh, i mean the oldest um archaeological evidence that we have of like a sourdough loaf um is from switzerland that was excavated um and dated to 3700 bc um i'm gonna say switzerland yeah um but obviously we know that the process is a lot older than that um and we know that because we have um depictions of it um and and we know that for example um in ancient egypt um they were making a form of sourdough um, so using that process of backsloughing, taking some of yesterday's bread to leaven next day's bread. Um, and so there is a wonderful picture, which I'm going to send to you now. And this is from the tomb of Kenamun um, in Egypt. And it is at oldest date, um, 1295 uh, BCE. Oh, yeah, that is that is very blatantly making some bread, isn't it? Yeah, so this is a depiction of the process of bread making um, on the wall of a tomb. And this is on a fairly industrial scale. Um, because we know that um, all of the workers building these great monuments were being supplied with large amounts of bread. I mean, you'd need it. Absolutely. <laughs> so, but this this is like amazing. They're like mixing the dough, and then like there's it looks like they're kneading it out, um, and then baking it. So I really enjoyed that. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> But then um, one of the first mentions we have of something that is pretty clearly the sourdough bread making process um, is our old friend Pliny the Elder. Of course. What didn't he write about? Uh, Just a renaissance man, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) 
Does it count if, if it's like several hundred years before the Renaissance? I mean, if the Renaissance was meant to be like harkening back to the classical era, I th- maybe this is just the the Naissance. Actually, that's true. <laughs> the original Naissance. <laughs> the OG Naissance man, Pliny the Elder. Who, as we know, was right about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, writing in seven, the year 77 um, CE <laughs> has a, a recipe for sourdough bread. Um, and actually, um, one of our other um, sources for this process is the New Testament. That's That's cool. Yeah, it is uh, it's pretty fun. Um, so, <laughs> Where in the New Testament does it tell you how to make bread? It's not necessarily uh, a recipe, but... Um, well, that's disappointing. I was hoping it'd just be like, here's some advice, how to make yeah. bread in a God-honouring way. It's more, it's more poetic. Um, so it's, there's a couple of mentions, actually, but one of them is... Um, um, I think it's the Gospel of Luke. Again, he asked, To what can I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Okay, so we have, well, like one part, one part starter, three parts flour. Yeah, I guess. I don't know how much a measure is like in in biblical terms, but... Presumably you also have to add some amount of water, but maybe that's just like as needed? Yeah, or maybe they were doing... Make bread with those proportions and see what happens. They could have been doing the thing where you take some of your, like, um, your levain or your yeast or whatever and you put it in water and let it ferment a little bit. I haven't come across doing that with sourdough. Okay. I've done it with like regular yeast, but yeah, yeah I don't know. That's mostly because regular yeast is sold dried, though, isn't it? Yeah, but then like it. you can, you can sort of let it. I don't know, but um, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> either way, um, a separate leavening substance is being used, mm-hmm. um, and so must have been sourdough. Oh, yeah, because they, they wouldn't have had industrial yeast. Yeah, there is there is no other way to raise a bread at this point. Um, and in fact, there isn't until we get brewer's yeast. So right up until the Middle Ages, um, sourdough is still the major method of raising your bread, whether you're doing that at home or whether you get your bread from the local baker because you don't have an oven. Um, yeah, and until we get uh, brewer's yeast or balm, which is a word I'm sure you'll be familiar with. Balm cakes. <laughs> so I found out during uh, looking this up that a balm cake, um, apart from being a delicious bread roll, um, the correct name for a bread roll. <laughs> it is ah no, but a balm cake <laughs> is a roll that's baked using uh, traditionally using balm as the raising agent. And balm is the foam off the top of a um, a brewing vat. Mm-hmm. 
So there's there's most of the story. <laughs> oh yeah, like there is a reason it's the correct name. It's not just geographical. It's just objective, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the the original red roll. Yeah. <laughs> not that I'm biased. <laughs> not at all. Um, <laughs> I'm sure any Mancunians listen to this will be vindicated. Um, yeah, so balm or the brewer's yeast comes uh, as a byproduct of the brewing process um, and was very convenient um, and, and a little bit faster for baking bread. Um, and so uh, that was, the, was one method uh, during the 14th and 15th centuries that came in. Um, but people continued still to make sourdough bread. Um, if you couldn't get brewer's yeast, and um, especially on the continent, uh, rye bread was traditionally made using the sourdough process, and still is to this day. Um, so in Scandinavia and Germany, they they still traditionally um, sourdough process is used um, for rye bread um, because it has something to do with making it more acidic, which is good. Um, you. I'm, I didn't get too deep into mm-hmm. um, how bread works <laughs> on this one. I do feel like those flavours would go together really well. Because I think rye is like, just to me it tastes a lot sort of earthier. Yeah, I think that's quite bread, like... And I think it would, yeah, that's going to combine well. Sorry, mm. I'm just thinking about I need to make some sourdough rye bread now and maybe have it with some sort of absolutely i think with like a a salted butter or something well oh yeah i've literally just eaten i'm getting hungry (laughs) i'm thinking about this now as well (laughs) this is the problem with doing a podcast where you talk about food all the time (laughs) (laughs) um anyway yeah so more brewer's yeast and then in the 19th century you get commercial yeast um which um Apparently, according to uh, a couple of things I found, was discovered by Louis Pasteur um, and became available towards the end of the 19th century. Um, But however, sourdough being still a very popular and very accessible method of baking bread, um, it has kind of endured through the ages. Um, One other other fun... um, thing about sourdough I found out was that apparently during the San Francisco gold rush um, it was like popular for the prospectors to have like a sourdough starter that they would carry with them Um, and apparently um, it was normal to like carry it around during the winter like on your person so that it didn't freeze which is really cute um yeah so apparently that's not like entirely like a lot of them were probably using um commercial yeast as well but um but i like the image of like these people just taking the the beloved sourdough starter with them in their pocket as they (laughs) seek their fortune um but it turns out san francisco is quite famous for its sourdough now I didn't um, that. That's cool. Yeah. So that's another one to add to the road trip. Um, Just San Francisco in general for some Yeah. Place. Yeah, it sounds like they have a lot of 
food there. Um, and speaking of famous uh, things related to sourdough, um, I also wanted to mention some famous sourdough starters because sourdough being such an old and well-loved method of baking bread, um, there are people out there who claim that their sourdough starter uh, dates back to any number of times and places. Naturally. Of course. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of want to make a legend about mine now. <laughs> but since I've talked about it on here, everyone knows where I got it from, sadly. Um, <laughs> but like, there's people who claim that there's like, dates back to the Middle Ages or like the Silk Road. <laughs> um, but some some famous ones which are fairly like um have a fairly good pedigree apparently um include um the kimuraya bakery in japan um which uses a sourdough starter that is made using cooked rice rice malt and water um which apparently has been going since the 1870s that's a while it is it is a while there's several people that supposedly have um sourdough starters dating back to the klondike gold rush um in the 1890s uh although it's it's really hard to prove because um you can't like you can't date them <laughs> mm-hmm. um but i i really like these these stories of Sourdough starters with their own little history. Um, And this is my personal favourite. There is a sourdough starter that is used by uh, one of the founders of the Xbox, James Blackley. Yes. I remember this. (laughs) Yes. um, I've been wanting to talk about this on the podcast for ages. Um, (laughs) So... (laughs) This guy also happens to be um, a hobbyist baker who is very into sourdough. And um, I'm not sure exactly how this happened, but uh, he managed to get together with an archaeologist and a microbiologist. I think he does have an Egyptology background is the thing. Ah, does he? Okay, fantastic. Um, So what they did was... Um, to extract yeast from ancient Egyptian um, pots and to reactivate it into a sourdough starter and use it to bake bread. Cool. This is amazing. Um, He even used grain that he milled himself uh, from einkorn wheat and barley, which is uh, an ancient form of domesticated wheat. That's cool. It's incredible. Um, and, and then, and then, do you know what he did when he baked the bread? He carved the hieroglyph for bread on top of it. Amazing. Um, I'm, I'm going to link you guys to this guy's Twitter. Because he does talk about the bread. <laughs> 
Um, or in fact, there are actually I'll link the BBC article on this um, because it has a lot of pictures of the bread. Um, and apparently, it tasted quite different from from sort of modern bread. I guess that makes sense because like, even without the sourdough aspect, you've got a different grain than would be used to. Yeah, apparently they're planning to um, to try and get samples from uh, the Old, Middle and New Kingdoms and bake with all of them. And then also the next stage of the project um, was to recreate the ancient e Egyptian style pots that were used for baking and to use those to bake, which um, this article was 2019 and I looked everywhere for any sort of update to this project and I didn't find anything. So if anyone knows, please let me know. I really want to find out how that turned out. I do have to ask if we're talking about um, unusual sourdough projects. Mm -hmm. Just because when you said you were doing sourdough, it reminded me. Are you aware of Zoe Stavry? I am not. Um... Zoe Stavry is a Twitter user who, in, um, I think, 2015, um, decided to make bread out of vaginal yeasts. Oh! Okay. I mean, I guess technically you could. She did. Um, but should you? <laughs> um, I mean, I I cannot answer that question. <laughs> I, I just know that she did. Okay. Wow. Um, I mean, I guess that's kind of, it's impressive. Um, she did live tweet it. Unfortunately, the hashtag for it does have a swear word in it but it's easy enough to find on the internet i think i can imagine i just, <laughs> I just needed to share that um and and now we all know about that <laughs> <laughs> incredible um truly Humanity knows no bounds. Indeed. <laughs> I am going to counter that with <laughs> a possibly the, the brightest note to end on. Um, did you know um, that in Belgium there is a sourdough library. What? Yeah, the Puratos, which is a baking company, uh, sourdough library um, <laughs> is uh, relatively close to Brussels and it preserves the world's rarest and oldest sourdough starters. That's cool. Yeah, so so they go around sort of seeking, um, asking people to give samples of their sourdough starters and they sort of collect them together um, so that they can be studied and 
um, they they can look at the the yeast and the bacteria strains um, because of course there are different wild yeasts um, that that are all over the world and um, supposedly they that kind of contributes to the flavour. Um, so so yeah, um, th- this is there is a um, microbiologist uh, involved um, and an Italian professor and. Um, yeah, so they, they, this is how they know that um, there's no way you can know how old they are, um, because apparently the the yeast and the bacteria um, that they're they're sort of very similar, so you can't really tell. Um, I mean, that in itself is quite cool to know, though. I think it is. It is. There isn't so like a, a yeast version of the mole clock. The what? Oh, it's this thing of like the speed that moles evolved means that you can use them to date sites where you find mole remains. Oh, like if it's far cool. enough back, yeah, you can be like, well, this is from this date range thousands of years ago because it has this kind of mole. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, but yeah, no, apparently there isn't. Um... But nevertheless, um, they they are on this quest to go and find uh, different sourdoughs and study them. Um, and it it it's it's kind of beautiful. Um, apparently, every year they focus on one country and and they go around sort of trying to find samples of sourdoughs. Uh, so so that one we could possibly put on the road trip. I don't know if, if they let people in, but um, maybe they could make an exception for two um, incredibly non-famous podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone from the Centre for Bread Flavour <laughs> is listening to this, let us in! Hit us up. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that concludes um, my collection of facts about sourdough. RPG ideas should be good, right? But what this podcast supposes is, maybe they don't have to be. The Probably Bad podcast brings you ideas like dire humans fight your GM in real life, and what if there is an eye laser man? Listen to the Probably Bad podcast, available everywhere podcasts exist, and some places where they don't. I thought that given the the big event in non-democracy this month <laughs> and we talk about coronation chicken okay that is that is a very yeah very specific local one that is it's interesting we've uh we've not got around to that one so far well i think there's so many better foods that's true <laughs> but i was explaining the the coronation quiche to someone and then i started thinking about coronation chicken (laughs) and how like coronation feasts have always been a thing but like coronation chicken seems to have been until this year the only real like signature dish of a british coronation True, and it is like something that could only have been created in nineteen fifties Britain. 
It really is. Um, so I, I should first explain just what what is coronation chicken. Coronation chicken is mayo with curry powder. Um, traditionally, as in like originally, also things like um, raisins and or flaked almonds, because it was meant to be this very like representative of the British Empire kind of thing. Um, it's based just this, yeah, curry mayonnaise. But not like good curry because it was created by Le Cordon Bleu in the fifties. Um, and yeah, you mix some chicken into it, and you can use it. I think it's mostly used either as like a thing that you put on a salad, or nowadays often a sandwich. Yeah, I've seen it in sandwiches a lot. Um... Yeah, like if if you go to like the sandwiches part of a supermarket or a a service station or something there will be coronation chicken sandwiches inexplicably they're always there um so yeah the origination that's not a word so the origin of it was essentially in 1953 the minister of works um which isn't a job that actually exists anymore, as far as I'm aware. That's a very vague job title. <laughs> yeah, I think it's one of those, like, wartime job titles that hadn't quite gone away yet. Uh... Um, yeah, the Ministry of Works was mostly to do with, like, requisitioning stuff for the war effort. Um, but the Minister of Works asked um, Le Cordon Bleu, which is a famous cookery school in London, to serve lunch for 350 visiting foreign dignitaries who were attending the coronation. Um, and the kitchen at the actual venue for the lunch was a bit kind of pokey, so they couldn't do anything elaborate. So they created Poulet Reine Elizabeth, because obviously it had to be named in French. Um, where you poached chicken breast in water and wine and then coating it in a sauce of mayonnaise, whipped cream, apricot puree, tomato puree, curry powder, lemon, black pepper and red wine and served it with a salad. Oh my god. Um, according to one of the people that ran uh, Le Cordon Bleu at the time, Constance Spry, it didn't really Tastes like how we would picture curry now. It had a delicate and nut-like flavour. Okay. Um, yeah, there's some theories that it was basically an adaptation of something called Jubilee Chicken made for George V, um, which also involved chicken mayonnaise and curry powder, but that wasn't really popularised at any point, so it could be entirely unrelated. Um, and the niece of Rosemary Hume, who was the other main person involved, said that it was actually inspired by a sandwich recipe from an 1886 cookbook by Harriet Andersalis. Um But that recipe also doesn't particularly resemble coronation chicken. 
But interestingly, at the time, because food rationing was still in place, it would have been a relatively luxurious thing because of some of these ingredients, like the tomato and just the fact that it's meat-focused and has imported things like curry powder. Yeah, I guess I can see how it would represent like the new post-war um, times. Yeah, like, between it being like relatively posh at the time and it being curry based I f- it does feel kind of like a like i said kind of trying to bring in that sort of post war but we've still got an empire cuz we're great kind of vibes mm-hmm. um which is quite different honestly to the coronation quiche which I guess I might as well also mention now. I've heard about this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very mixed reviews. <laughs> um, which is meant to be this much more straightforward thing, because there were people talking about, like, ah, it's, it's an austerity coronation dish. Was, I don't think austerity and coronation go together. Mm. <laughs> But it was created by, actually, the royal chef, um, personal chef of Charles III, Mark Flanagan. Um, Because it's versatile and can be easily adapted to suit various dietary requirements. Um, Maybe not that. Um, Everyman, given the current egg shortage, (laughs) making a quiche is certainly a choice. and also, the despite Nigel Farage insisting this is a vegan quiche and it's it's all PC, even though vegan quiches, what? it's got eggs and cheese it's got in it. Eggs right? in it, like um, it, that's literally what makes it a quiche. Yeah, so it's a custard. Yeah, it's like a tarragon custard, which also has double cream in and cheese because it's a quiche. It's going to have cheese in it, um, and then spinach and broad beans. Which certainly sounds like an interesting texture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, despite that, but I mean, what does Farage know about anything? Um, I'm desperately because... trying not to get too political on this uh, history podcast. History <laughs> is political, you know this. I guess um, it's, it's not political to say that Nigel Farage is an idiot, is it? But yeah, despite that, the, the pastry actually um, in Flanagan's recipe contains lard. Mm. Okay. Very much not vegetarian or vegan. No. <laughs> um, and also cannot be eaten by two very large religions. So I'm not sure we've <laughs> really succeeded in making it this like thing everyone can have, Mark Boy. <laughs> um, that's, that's fantastic. But even just the reviews of the flavour are very mixed. Like, some people say it's delicious, some people made it on various, like, weekend morning shows and frankly did not look like they were having a good time while (laughs) saying how delicious it was, so, yeah. So what you're saying is it's truly a quiche for our times. It really is. It represents the modern United Kingdom. (laughs) It's very much a, a Greta Barrett dish, judging <laughs> on some people's reactions, frankly. 
Um, so yeah, Coronation Chicken and to a much lesser extent, Coronation Quiche. <laughs> no, that was certainly interesting. And I have to say, I feel like I would like the quiche more than the traditional Coronation Chicken because the idea of something that is both cold and has raisins in it is just my worst nightmare. Like, I think I'd be okay with, like, modern coronation chicken is not my favourite, but if that's, like, what's left at the buffet, I'll probably eat it. <laughs> coronation quiche just sounds like slime. <laughs> Do like, you like quiche in general? And, I love quiche, but custard can be, the custard can be quite slimy, because it's set custard, and mm. it's good. Oh, it's actually like yeah. a smooth custard rather than just like beaten. Okay. Yeah. So then combining that with wilted wilted or cooked spinach, is this going to be gooshy? <laughs> with just random lumps where the beans are, presumably. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'll be trying coronation quiche. I'm, I'm not sure it'll become a hit. I don't know, maybe, maybe in 50 years' time we'll be driving down the motorway and see it in... <laughs> sandwiches? In Not as sandwiches, just like, I don't know, like individual mini ones in plastic packets or whatever they have instead of plastic packets in 50 years. <laughs> as we pull into the vehicle charging stations. <laughs> <laughs> um... So thank you for listening. If if you want to become one of our pun-loving patrons, or a non-pun-loving patron, you don't have to love puns, um, you can go to patreon.com slash breadandthread and get access to a Discord server and monthly recipes, which are probably nicer than Coronation Quiche. But we can't guarantee it. I mean, tastes vary. <laughs> You can also find us on Tumblr at Bread and Thread, um, where we uh, re blog things of interest and also podcast news. Um, same goes on Twitter, where you can find pictures that we talk about um, on the podcast, links to things, um, and also teasers about upcoming episodes. And if you want to suggest an episode or a local larder, you can message us on either Tumblr or Twitter, which are both Bread and Thread. Or email breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time for an episode that's probably not about bread. <laughs> <laughs>